morning. Good morning. How you guys doing this morning? That's good. That's good. That's good. As as Pastor Rod has mentioned, we will continue in the ecclesiology series. Um, the first two weeks, we talked about the overview of the church. Um, last week, we talked about the governance of the church or the church leadership, and this week we'll be discussing baptism and communion. And so, when I um, when I think about baptism, I think about uh, my wedding rings. Um, our, my wedding ring is a, a token given to me, presented, uh, presented to represent my covenantal relationship with my wife. So this is a, a public statement um, to the world that she is mine and I am hers. So similar to the wedding ring, the holy ordinance say to the world that we are his and he is ours. But if we're not careful, we will treat the ordinance as empty rituals instead of the glorious institutions they are. And we'll miss out on the opportunity to worship God. We will forfeit the joy that these means of grace provide. And we will be disobeying the God that instituted these ordinances. So this morning, I just want to simply walk through the meaning of baptism, how it was modeled, our mandate in baptism, the meaning of the Lord's Supper, and kind of four truths that I see in the Lord's Supper and application. And we'll take communion and we'll go from there. Amen. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. Um, we give you glory, we give you thanks for your word. Um, use me as you see fit, Lord God. I pray, oh Father, that your word would fall on good ground, oh God, and that you would give us a greater appreciation, oh Lord, for baptism and the Lord's Supper, oh God, that we would not see them as empty rituals, oh Lord, but the glorious institutions, oh Father, that they are. So we thank you and we praise you for who you are in Christ Jesus' name, amen. So Romans, so what does baptism mean? What does baptism mean? Romans chapter six, verse three through four, as Pastor Rod read earlier, um, says, do you not know all of us have been baptized into Jesus, into Christ Jesus, were baptized unto his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death in order that, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 12 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So, so as you guys have heard this phrase a lot, baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. In baptism, we are identifying with the death burial and resurrection of Jesus. So when we are immersed in water that represents the old man dying and when we are raised up out of the water it represents the new life. This is what I believe Romans chapter 6 and Colossians 2:11 are conveying. So in salvation God gives us a new heart, a new nature and the old man is dead. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 22 through 24 says to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So when we think about baptism, baptism is the outward expression of the inward change that has taken place by the Holy Spirit. But baptism is, is, is also an act performed by those who have put their trust in Jesus. 
We see this in Acts chapter 2, verses, verse 41 says, so those, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 8, verse 12 says, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And then lastly, Acts chapter 18, verse 8 says, Crispus the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So baptism is, is not salvation, nor does it confer salvation, but it's an outward of expression of the Spirit's work that has already taken place within our hearts. Similar to being on a, on a team, right? So when you, when you, when you join a, a sports team or basketball team, baseball team or um, a, a soccer club, you get a jersey. The jersey doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make you a part of the team. You either have to get drafted, signed, or, or make, the, make the tryout. So the same way in, in baptism, the jersey only represents that you are a member of the team. So similar in baptism, baptism does not confer salvation. It's not salvation, but it's, 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 it's a confirmation of your salvation or represents your salvation. So that's the that's a core meaning of baptism. But but we also want to see how, how baptism was, was modeled by Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered, Let it be so now that thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So here we see Christ obeying God's commandment in order that he might be the perfect Savior and substitute for us. Here, here what, what, what one commentator says, James Boyd says, in, in Christian baptism, we are identified with Jesus in the death and the resurrection so that his death becomes our death and his resurrection, our resurrection. In Jesus' baptism by John, Jesus identified with us in our humanity, thereby taking on himself the obligation to fulfill all righteousness so that he might be a perfect savior and substitute for us. Isn't this comforting and humbling at the same time when we think about the message of John? John was saying, repent and be baptized, but Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He, there, was, there wasn't anything that, that, that he needed to repent of. He was a perfect man. But we see here that he's obeying God in order to be the perfect Savior and substitute for us. But then check out the Father and the Spirit in this passage. We see the Spirit descending on him um, like a dove and then the Father saying how he's pleased with the Lord. So, so we see this rare instance in the Scripture where the, all three members of the Trinity um, on, on, in the same scene. But in this passage, we see Jesus being commissioned for his messianic work, which climaxed in his death on the cross for our sins. In this commissioning, baptism was a pivotal experience, not that it made Jesus anything that he was not already, but it, that it launched him on the mission that he was prepared for. 
So when we witness people in this baptism pool, I'm not saying that the sky gonna crack open and that you're gonna see the spirit descend on whatever recipient like a dove or you hear audible voice from the Lord, but I do believe that we can expect God's presence and grace to accompany us when we obey him in baptism. It is considered the first act of obedience and Jesus himself modeled it for us. So we see the meaning of baptism and we see the model by Jesus of baptism. But then next, we see the mandate related to baptism. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. We're all familiar with this passage. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So not only did Jesus model for us the significance of baptism, but he also made it an integral part of the mission of the church. Make disciples is the imperative in this particular passage. But how do we do it? He says by baptizing and teaching. So is, is, Jesus, saying, is Jesus saying that baptism is, is, is salvation or does it confer, confer salvation? No. Based on, what, based on the passages and the early examples that I gave in Acts earlier, um, I don't believe Jesus is saying that. But I, what I do believe that he's saying is that baptism, baptism is, is in lockstep with one another when we, when we, when we relate it to salvation. So, so much so that Jesus used baptism to communicate how we ought to make disciples. So, baptism is well connected to the mission of the church. So, I believe that's our mandate as it relates to baptism as we look to make disciples. So, if baptism is the, considered to be the first act of obedience, the Lord's Supper is our continued obedience. Said another way, if baptism is the outward expression of the inward change, the Lord's Supper is a frequent reminder of, of the one who is responsible for that inward change. So what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? Here's a working definition. The Lord's Supper is, a, is the partaking of the bread and the cup, which are emblems that represents the Lord's body and blood in remembrance of Christ's finished work on the cross for us. Where do we see this? Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 29, uh, according to the passage that uh, Pastor Rod read earlier. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink, excuse me, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, 23 through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Man, I, thought, I think it's very, when we go back to the passage in Matthew, I think it's very strategic and significant that the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper 
in the midst of eating the Passover meal. So according to Exodus 12, the Passover was the Lord passing over all of the houses that had the blood of the unblemished lamb on the doorpost as he executed judgments on the Egyptians by killing all of their firstborns. To the Israelites, this was God rescuing them. And part of the requirement of the Passover was for the Israelites to eat the Passover lamb and to memorialize the work that God had done. Check out Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. It says, this, this day you shall... This day you, sh you shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. And you shall keep it as a feast. Verses 24 through 27 says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land and that, that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice that the Lord's Passover, for he has passed over the house, houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And according to verse 8 of that same book, they ate the flesh of the Passover lamb. So Jesus was, the disciples would have known these parallels and these correlations that he was, the context in which they, that, that he was instituting the Lord's Supper. The disciples would have very well known this, this relationship with the Passover lamb and with him instituting the Lord's Supper. Here, here's what I believe the Lord was getting at. The Lord was saying that I'm greater than the Passover lamb. In fact, the Passover lamb is pointing to me. I'm going to die for the forgiveness of your sins. And in the same way you memorialize being saved from the hands of Pharaoh, remember the one who saved you from the hands of a wrathful God. The same way you ate the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, eat of my flesh and blood that represents a greater sacrifice. Greater sacrifice. One, com one commentator puts it this way. The things signified by these outward signs, they are Christ's body and blood. The body broken, his blood shed together with all the benefits which flow from his death and sacrifice. It is the New Testament in his blood. His blood is the seal and sanction of all the privileges of the new covenant. And worthy receivers take it as such as the holy ordinance. They have the New Testament and their own title to all the blessings of the new covenant confirmed to them by his blood. Man, isn't this good news? Our heart should be filled with joy and thanksgiving because we get to celebrate the glorious work that Christ has done. And, and this is one of the means that God, one of the means of grace that God has provided for us. Think about it for a second. We, because of what Christ has done, we have access to the Father as sons and daughters. When we pray to him, we don't have to worry about him ignoring us. We don't have to worry about him being distracted, but he hears from us. This has been afforded to us because of what Christ has done on the cross on our behalf. So the bread and the cup are not empty symbols that we eat and drink to check off some type of religious box that we do on a Sunday morning, but they mean much more. There are at least, thank you, Pastor Rod. <laughs> there are at least Four things that I want to point out um, about the Lord's Supper um, as we continue. The Lord's Supper is Christ exalting. I know that seems obvious, but I think it's noteworthy that the Lord's Supper is Christ exalting. His broken body and poured out blood points to the work on the cross, which inaugurated a new covenant. So there's no doubt that we are remembering Christ and what he has done for us in taking the Lord's Supper. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, one of my favorite verses says, For him, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in earth, making peace by his blood of his cross. So the Lord's Supper is Christ exalting. But then next, the Lord's Supper is nourishment to our souls. You say, where'd you get this from, Travis? John chapter 6, verse, verses 53 through 57. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also, he also will live because of me. Now, of course, Jesus is not talking about a literal eating, but a spiritual one. So when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're making a statement that says, Lord, because of your redemption that you have earned on my behalf, my soul no longer starve and malnourished, but I am satisfied in you and only you. So the Lord's Supper is soul nourishing. But then also the Lord's Supper is evangelistic. The Lord's Supper is evangelistic. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So not only are we proclaiming to ourselves what the Lord has done for us in taking communion, but we are announce announcing to unbelievers, Christ has died on the cross for our sins. Trust and believe in the Savior. So church, let us not underestimate what the Lord by his grace can do when we gather as a church and remember his death in this way as he commanded. So the Lord's Supper is evangelistic. But then lastly, the Lord's Supper gives us hope. The Lord's Supper gives us hope. Matthew chapter 26 verse 29 says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus promised, promised his disciples that one day he will be with them again. So the operative phrase in this particular verse is with you, with you. So one day we will see him face to face and have unbroken fellowship with him for all of eternity. So not only do we reflect on what he has done on the cross for us, but we are also reminded that he is coming back to get his bride, which is the church. So in closing, baptism and the Lord's Supper are not empty, empty rituals, but glorious institutions that the Lord has commanded his church to obey. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. We give you glory and we give you thanks, oh God, for um, baptism and what you instituted in the Lord's Supper, Lord God. I pray, oh Father, that, um, that you, oh Father, would be exalted, oh Father, in these institutions, oh Lord. And we know ultimately, oh God, that our, the baptism in, in Lord's Supper points to our identity in you, our union with Christ. So Father God, help us to realize that more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.